This is My Faith Walking Journey podcast with Jim Harrington, Episode 1, Building Loving Communities by Being Fully Present and Fully Committed with Cindy Wu. For over 25 years, Jim has been serving the church in Houston, Texas by working to mobilize individuals and congregations into collaborative efforts that are designed to serve the common good. In this podcast series, Jim is talking to community leaders in Houston and across the country who are working to build more loving communities as a systemic solution to the big challenges that our communities face today. You can find the show notes for this podcast and for any other podcast in this series on Jim's blog, jimtharrington.com. Now, let's get into Jim's conversation with Cindy. I'm talking to my friend Cindy Wu, who is a, um, a mom and a wife, I guess not in that order, a wife and a mom. Uh, she's been a personal friend of mine for uh, longer than either one of us want to count, and uh, she's <laughs> also recently uh, uh, an author. I'm gonna let her tell you about her uh, her book in, in a little bit later in the in the podcast. But uh, it's really good to see you this morning. You too, Jim. Um, so uh, I think I've told you before that you know what I'm working on is trying to foster a conversation both here in Houston and in places across the country about building loving communities. I've just become increasingly troubled, maybe even to the point of alarmed, at how vitriolic our conversation has become, at how uh, divisive uh, uh, things have become, about how entrenched people seem to be in a view that they hold as that's the only view and it's the right view. And if you love God and, you know, the American way, so to speak, that you're going to hold my view. And, um, uh, yeah, and so I'm just trying to foster some conversations around that that uh, help to spark people's imagination and that help them to know about uh, ways that people are, are working on this stuff. Um, I love Shane Claiborne's definition where he says that a loving community is a place where everyone is safe and everyone has enough. Um, I wonder what you think of when you hear that. I wonder if it stirs up hope in you or resignation or something in between. I mean, as you think about all that and you think about what I'm working on, I'm just interested, Cindy, in what your perspective is on all that. Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, what it reminds me of is just Acts 2, you know, where the believers in the early church, this was their vision and this was their reality. And I think it's a really challenging vision and difficult to apply in pluralistic societies, but I think it's something that we really must strive for as Christians. I think that our faith and our calling in Christ really calls for nothing less than that. I think um, it is idealistic because we know that in a fallen world, there is no absolute guarantee that everyone can be safe and everyone has enough But I think that we can strive for something close to that vision. Um, The more cynical we become, the Mm. more we draw into ourselves, the more Mm. selfish and more self-centered we become. And so I think it's really important as Christians to fight that cynicism and fight that hopelessness and keep pressing towards the vision that is laid out for us in Acts 2. Yeah. Yeah, so you're a part of a faith community here in Houston. Uh, You're part of a family. Uh, You're part of a larger community where... Uh, you're actually working on trying to create those kinds of loving communities. Um, would you would you tell us just a little bit about your own life and about uh, how that is how you're working on that places that's playing out? Uh, I'd be really interested in whatever is going on that you could tell us that would help help us 
put a face on that. Sure. So um, I'll start off with my neighborhood, just my street. Um, I was really inspired by a book that you referred me to actually called The Art of Neighboring. Mm -hmm. I read that book and was really convicted about how little I knew about my neighbors. Um, We've moved into this subdivision about four years ago and I've always kind of been a big initiative taker, and so when I moved into the neighborhood, I just didn't want to, like, take over because a lot of my neighbors have lived here for over 15 years and just kind of waited for someone to be welcoming, and honestly, it never really happened, and so last year, well, just a few months ago, actually, David and I hosted a block party on our street, and we invited every home in our cul-de-sac, and all of our neighbors came out, and it was really interesting because some of the neighbors commented that they had lived in this neighborhood for 17 years and had not met each other. Wow. And that just really struck me. You know, the first step to building a loving community is to just get to know people. Right, right. So that has been really something that I have developed a lot of passion for is just um, bringing together my, my neighbors. And that's something that we're really committed to right now, hosting block parties, participating in National Night Out, Um, just any type of neighborhood activity that we can. And what's been really interesting about that is just um, for me, since I homeschool my children, I am actually not able to get into the community, you know, like the schools, because I'm at home with my kids. And so it's really opened a lot of doors for good conversation and ministry um, among my neighbors. Um, Another thing that my family in particular is involved with is refugees. Um, This is a huge passion of mine is just welcoming the refugees in Houston. So Houston, as you probably know, is the top resettlement city in America. Mm -hmm. And um, we are involved with YMCA International. They help resettle refugees. And what we did one year was we adopted an Iraqi Orthodox family. And for Christmas, just our church... um, pulled together a lot of resources and bought them items for their home and financial gifts. And we continued on with that friendship with this particular family. And so we hang out with them on a regular basis. We help them um, prepare their resumes when they apply for jobs. We um, provide school supplies for them and just, we're just friends with them. It's a very um, mutual type of friendship. We don't really view ourselves as having so much to offer them, but we really love them and just want to learn from them as well. Mm. Um, We are part of a small group right now that is um, part of our vision for this small group is to partner with the YMCA International in um, helping with refugees. And then um, I also participated in World Refugee Day Houston. I was on the education committee and um, interviewed some refugee leaders wrote up some blog posts about them, um, and my kids and I all participated in like a a simulation event at World Refugee Day Houston. Um, As far as my church goes, um, one thing that the church is doing to foster a loving community is we have this ongoing program called The Hangout, Mm -hmm. and there's some folks from the church just go out to Herman Park, and there are some homeless people there and some people who just are looking for community and we hang out with them and we play chess and we do meals and that's just been something that we've maintained for many years and has borne a lot of fruit. Um, Finally, I wanted to mention that I have been on the board. I've recently stepped down from the board of something called Box Culture and Box Culture is a nonprofit that was started by my church's pastor, Ted Law. Box Culture seeks to connect our Houston community with social causes in creative ways 
And Vox really seeks to bring together people from different backgrounds and address social injustice in the city of Houston. We've um, hosted several panel discussions, and I've had the pleasure and honor of being able to moderate some of them on domestic violence and um, nutritional poverty in the city of Houston. So those are just some ways that we're trying to address social issues, but bring people together from different backgrounds hmm. to, to, like you said, form a loving community for our entire city. You know, my first response to all of that is how inspired I am by how much you're doing. Um, uh, and and the things you're doing are so inspiring. I want to go back to the very first thing you said in that in that litany of of uh, ways that you're connecting to people, and it was that the beginning place is you've got to know your neighbor. Um, I wonder as you deal with War Refugee Day and with homeless people and with the Iraqi family that you're describing, uh, how how have you been changed by those by those experiences? Okay. Um, I will mention my Iraqi friends first because they've really impacted our whole family's lives so much. You know, when my husband and I struggle with where we are financially, with just our time and with the stresses in our lives, every time we hang out with our Iraqi friends, I just feel like my perspective has been greatly mm. challenged. I mean, these are people who have lost everything and they come here and they just have you know, a cheerful disposition about them. They're just trying to make the very best of what they have. Um, in terms of my faith, I've really been challenged by my Iraqi friends because they are, they come from an Orthodox background. And, you know, I will admit that many years ago, I would really question just people who are Orthodox, you know, whether their faith was, I guess, as sound as my evangelical <laughs> faith and whether they knew Christ and loved God the way that an evangelical like myself would, well, when I look at my Iraqi friends and the cost that they have counted to follow Christ, you know, there's really no doubt in my mind that they love Jesus mm. and possibly even more than I do, mm. Um, mm. that it's not just good theology, but it's the way that we live out our lives. It's the things that we're willing to really die to for the sake of Christ. So they've really just challenged my faith and, and yeah, they've just really challenged me to consider what does it mean to follow Christ? Well, it sounds like it's uh, given you a broader perspective than you had that, that one of the things that I, that I see happening so much in our, in, in our communities across the country is that people bring a perspective and then they hold on to that perspective as if, as if that's the, the truth with a capital T rather than what I hear you saying is you have a perspective, but your perspective has been enlarged it's been broadened because you've encountered people who are different than you. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And it seems to me like that's such a vital um, uh, piece of this thing about why it's so important for us to know our neighbors. Mm -hmm. um, I, I know that in my own life, when we, um, when we first moved down into the Montrose community of Houston, I had spent most of my life up until that point, And I was, must've been in my, I don't know, my early forties. And um, I spent most of my life surrounded by uh, people who were like me, middle class, Anglo, folks from the Deep South, Southern Baptist traditions. Um, uh, and, uh, and it was when we moved to Montrose, which is a very different community, we began working with folks in recovery from drug and alcohol addictions, that it just broadened my perspective in ways that, uh, that it almost hard to describe. Um, 
and that really, um, I think, made me a more loving person. Absolutely. Yeah. That was that was the impression, you know, when we joined your church gym back in 1999, Harbor, that was the impact that it had on David and me as well. Yeah. So as you think about building loving communities, and you're obviously very actively involved in that in, in a whole variety of ways, um, uh, you and David are Chinese Americans. Uh, and and I, I often uh, wonder, uh, we've had this conversation, but I want to I want to get this on the podcast. I wonder if you think about fostering or nurturing loving communities differently uh, than someone from another culture does. Does your Chinese American heritage um, cause you to see the world in, in some in some different ways than somebody who doesn't come from that heritage? Mm. Yeah, that's a really great question. So, yes, definitely my ethnic heritage does um, give me a certain perspective on identity. Um, for, I would say for many years, I've seen myself as someone on the outside, mm -hmm. someone on the fringe, someone on the margins looking in. And now, you know, I would say that I am someone who has really only recently found her voice and I believe that in this generation that the Asian American voice is finally strong enough and loud enough to really make a difference mm. in communities across our nation. Um, I honestly sometimes don't see myself as host in this country because just one generation ago, my parents were guests and there's such a social and ethnic and linguistic distance between the West and the East that it's taken me time to kind of cross that chasm, you know, whether that chasm was placed by other people or just perceived by myself. Um, and so as I've grown older and as I have, you know, with every year just assimilate more into my city, I definitely am able to take a different and bolder approach to welcoming people. Um, I think, um, that as an Asian American, I can relate really well to people who are on the margins, mm -hmm. to people who don't claim American culture and heritage as their native background. So in that way, as an Asian American, I feel like there's actually a benefit to creating loving communities because I know what it's like to have been excluded. I know what it's like for people to question whether or not I belong. Mm. Um, within the Asian community, um, it's really easy to just focus on the Asian community because we have a lot of instant community just based on our histories and our backgrounds. And, you know, there's this kind of joke that if you are Asian Christian and Texan, you, there's basically like one point of separation between every single person. I mean, I've been in China and talked to someone for two minutes and yes, we have a <laughs> A friend in common, a mutual contact. Um, so one challenge for me as an Asian American is really to get outside of those ethnic circles to mm. say, you know, yes, it's important for us as Asians to be connected, but our city is so much bigger than just the Asians here. You know, we um, as minorities have a voice and we have influence to reach, you know, the city as a whole. So... Um, Houston is a really great place for this to play out because Houston is very cosmopolitan. There are a lot of people here from, from the outside. Um, Houston is home to many guests, many recent immigrants, 
um, who share similar stories to mine. So honestly, I feel like right now is a really um, key moment um, in the city of Houston's history for immigrants to embrace the city as a whole and um, build loving communities because we we truly do represent um, a microcosm of the world. So uh, you said a couple of things that I'd like for you to just unpack a little bit more for people who don't have your experience. You talked about uh, the chasm that you had to cross in order to move from being guest to being host. Mm-hmm. I, lo- I love that language. Um, would you describe the chasm a little more? I mean, I, 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 so I, what I assume is that the chasm was that you were treated as an outsider, that you experienced prejudice as a child. Are those the kinds of things that you're talking about? Yes. So yeah. things that make me feel like I don't belong here mm-hmm. or that I don't have a right to claim this place as my own. Um, so I'll just tell you what happened last week. Okay. Um, I was at Costco trying to get a food sample, and the guy who was giving the food sample, after a few moments of conversing with him, you know, we were already chatting, and then he asks me, where are you from? And I sigh and kind of roll my eyes <laughs> and say, my parents are from Taiwan, and I don't dare say that. Um, I am Taiwanese because then I usually get, oh, I love Thai food. (laughs) And I have to explain that Taiwan is not Thailand. So anyways, he says, but you were born here, right? And I said, yes, I was born here. And then he makes the comment, your English is really good. (laughs) And I think, you know, I just told you that I was born here. What were you expecting? So it's just little comments like that that I still get in a community mm. like Sugarland, where it's 35% Asian. Right. You know, I would just think that I would not be such an anomaly in this community. Mm. You know, I can understand if I had been in Victoria or I don't know, yeah. East Texas, if someone had asked me that and had marveled at my English. But to find that here in Houston, in Sugarland, was really disconcerting to me. Mm. So that's that chasm. It's just sometimes just when I feel like this is my home, then I get approached with that question. And and I do want to, in all fairness and in all graciousness, I do acknowledge that I look, you know, like an immigrant. But it's when those questions come after someone's already talked to me for a while that I still feel like, wow, you're still so surprised. Well, and, you know, I even would say I don't think you look like like what I think an immigrant looks like. I think you look like a Chinese-American. And that's really clear. Uh, but what does an immigrant look like, you know, mm-hmm. uh, if, especially in the kind of diverse uh, uh, cosmopolitan setting that we live in? Well, that's really that's really helpful to hear. Uh, and it just puts meat on the bones for me of, of, of that distinction between moving from guest to moving from host. I can really see how if your ongoing, regular, daily experience was conversations that subtly communicated to you that you're not an insider, mm-hmm. that it'd be very easy for you to then take the stance of, I'm, I'm still a guest. I'm not an insider. I'd, I'd, I'm not a host here. This, 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 this community or this uh, neighborhood or this congregation doesn't belong to me. I don't have responsibility here. Right. I can, I can really see how that would happen. And so uh, you, you said you had just begun finding your voice I just want to take another minute or two before we get to the book. Uh, could you tell me what are there? Were there some seminal moments there? Was there a kind of a defining point where you, you had the awareness that you no longer were taking the stance of a guest and had moved more to the stance of a host, hmm. or was it just accumulation of a series of experiences? 
It's been it's been a long process. I, I would definitely describe it more as a you know as accumulation of um, just education and exposure. So, you know, part of me feeling like I didn't have a voice had to do a little bit with motherhood. I had three kids in three years, and so I was homebound a lot, and I wasn't able to just you know get out very much. And uh-huh. so it wasn't until I started seminary. Um, seven years ago that I started to read more broadly and um, try to focus um, just more globally, have a more global perspective on um, just a lot of issues that affect the church and the world. Um, In the past few years, I have started to read Asian bloggers and follow some Asian speakers and pastors Mm. and um, conference speakers online like Eugene Cho and Francis Chan, people who are becoming more recognized mm-hmm. by, you know, mainstream Christian um, Americans. And so those people have given me, you know, a lot of hope and a lot of inspiration that Asians can be very influential in the church. It's still, I still feel like we have a quiet voice. I mean, if you look just at you know, popular media, if you look at entertainment, there aren't many prominent Asian, you know, sports players, movie stars, singers. I mean, when you think about sports, really, you think of Jeremy Lin, Uh and then you are hard-pressed to think of any other Mm -hmm. Asian Americans that are very popular. Um, Same thing with Asians, and the ones, the Asians that are famous are more or less pegged into those martial arts roles, you know, mm-hmm. or That's like that um, spy, evil yeah. <laughs> finger. <laughs> right. Um, so, yeah, I think just a slow process of being encouraged by those who are Asian and trying to speak out has been very inspiring to yeah. me. Cool. So uh, you found your voice in a really huge way uh, when this past year uh, you published uh, your first book. Uh, mm-hmm. Tell us, tell us about the book, and tell us how the the book, like for me, it's become a resource in this conversation. Tell us how you see it serving as a resource. Sure. Well, um, when I was at Gordon Conwell Seminary, one of my advisors was Dr. Todd Johnson. He is the director for the Center of the Study of Global Christianity, one of the world's foremost research centers on religious demography. And demography just means counting counting religious people. Mm-hmm. So Todd is the guy that. Um, a lot of people go to when they want to know how many Christians live in Nigeria or how many Christians are being persecuted around the world right now. So um, Todd had advised my master's project, which was a curriculum that I wrote on how churches can um, minister to refugees. And so Todd just more or less called me out of the blue um, (laughs) in October of 2013 and asked me if I would help him write this book called um, Our Global Families, and it's about Christians embracing common identity in a changing world. And what the book seeks to do is first, um, from a religious demography um, academic standpoint, give you, paint a picture of what our global families look Mm -hmm. like. So our global Christian family and our global human family. And it gives us numbers as to how the world has changed. And behind those numbers is a story. And the story tells us that the demographics of the church have changed very dramatically over the past 100 years. Whereas a hundred years ago, the church was largely Western and white. Right now the church is majority Latin American, Asian, African, so non-white and Southern. So what that story tells us is that we need to 
analyze, like we in the West need to analyze, how do we do church? How do we do theology? Are we recognizing some of our cultural prejudices and biases when we approach the way we do church? And how can we hear and listen from people in the South who have a different type of perspective? Um, I think something the book really offers in terms of trying to foster loving communities is the last section of the book talks about um, changing our world and um, changing our relationships with one another. So chapter eight, for instance, talks about interfaith relations. Um, one thing that I've been a part of here in Houston is the um, Interfaith Ministries of Greater Houston has these dinner dialogues where you're invited sometimes to the home of a particular religious person or to a worship center, and you have dinner conversations um, with people from all different religious backgrounds, and um, the goal is to be good listeners. The goal is to hear from one another, not to engage in debate per mm -hmm, se, but mm -hmm. just to learn first, okay? Be learners first. So um, chapter eight talks about the importance of interfaith conversations with people, not only from different backgrounds, but also from this increasing category of nuns, or that's N-O-N-E-S, that is people who, <laughs> not right. Right. people who do not claim any particular um, religious adherence. And um, so from the nuns, as well as people who are not, not religious, like, you know, atheists, agnostics, so that's a key component in conversation in, in this age, in this generation, as these none and as these atheist agnostic categories grow. Um, in chapter nine, we talk about hospitality and what, what we call a covenantal hospitality looks like. A covenantal hospitality is hospitality that reflects God and his hospitality towards us. We discuss um, the mutuality of hospitality, that when we host people, we are not just offering them something, but they offer us something mm -hmm. in return, and that we must give as well as receive. Um, so just a spirit of hospitality towards you know the stranger, welcoming the stranger, whoever that may be. And then we talk in um, the last two chapters of the book about what we can't do and what we can do. You know, we need to recognize that as Christians, we have our limitations. There are um, things that Christians attempt to do that are actually more hurtful than helpful. So we talk about um, just recognizing some of those limitations. But then we also talk about faithful presence. And this is just the concept of being faithful in the places where God is calling you to, um, not focusing so much on the changes that we want to execute, but just being present, being fully committed and being fully present to those communities and saying, I'm here, I am committed. I may not have all the answers, but I'm here and I want to be a part of this. Um, the last chapter of our book focuses on practical ways in which we can get involved with justice. So we talk about the UN's Millennial Development Goals. We talk about different um, nonprofits and what they do um, to help change the world. And then we just talk about what we can do on a really simple basis in our own homes, changing our shopping habits, our eating habits, our, um, the way that we spend our time and our resources, just little practical ways that we can impact the world for good. Um, go ahead. It's a great book, uh, and um, I recommend it to everybody uh, who's listening to this podcast. 
Uh, the thing that I love about the book, not only is it global in its scope, it's very practical in its um, uh, in its approach. Uh, and I don't know Todd, but I know you, and I I just always am inspired when I find people who write and who live in ways that have integrity. I see you living out in your day-in, day-out life what you're writing about in the book. And um, so I want to encourage folks who are listening to the podcast to, to find a copy. Tell us the name of the book again and where the folks can find it. Sure. It's called Our Global Families by Todd Johnson and Cindy Wu, and you can get it on Amazon.com. So there's a lot more that we could talk about. We could actually have a whole conversation about the book and some of the issues like hospitality and some of those kinds of things. Maybe we'll have another conversation somewhere along the way. Okay, sure. Thanks so much, Cindy. Really appreciate your um, doing this with me today. Thank you for listening to My Faith Walking Journey podcast with Jim Harrington. If you enjoyed this podcast, feel free to subscribe and to help more people find it by giving a rating and writing a review on iTunes. And if you want to connect with Jim, you can do that on Twitter, at Jim Harrington. Stay tuned for the next episode in this series on building loving communities.